0: Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 12: The Father of the Fight. So last time, we discussed the initial Arab conquest of Central Asia and introduced Suluk Khan. We discussed Suluk's rebuilding of Turgesh power and the almost inevitable conflict between a resurgent Turgesh Khanate and the Umayyad Caliphate we left off with the Day of Thirst in 724, the first great defeat of the Arab armies by Suluk, following which the Arabs gave Suluk his famous nickname, Abu Muzahim, the father of the fight. And today, we will pick up the story and discuss that fight, the fight of the Turks against the Arab armies of Islam. So after the Day of Thirst, the Arabs were put on the defensive across Central Asia. The Day of Thirst was a humiliating defeat. It shattered the illusion of Arab invincibility. As news of the defeat spread throughout the Sogdian city-states in north of the Amu Darya, they began to rise up to throw off the Arab yoke. Across Central Asia, one by one, the local Sogdian cities broke off their relations with the Arabs and expelled the garrisons. Umayyad authority collapsed. And even south of the Amu Darya, in the lands of Khorasan and Balkh, Umayyad power began to slip. Not only did the cities and kingdoms of the east rise up against the Muslims, but Islamic sources even imply that there was a great deal of apostasy among those locals who had converted. After the day of thirst, some of the more opportunistic converts dropped their new religion and returned to the faiths of their fathers, to Zoroastrianism and Buddhism. In response to this crisis, the caliph appointed Assad ibn Abdullah as governor of Khorasan to replace the beaten al kalabi who had been recalled shortly after his humiliating defeat, and the caliph split the government of Khorasan away from being subject to the governorship of Iraq, raising it up as its own equal governorship. Upon his arrival in Khorasan, Assad attempted to stabilize the situation by cultivating the local nobility and the local converts to Islam, the Mawali. Like al-Kalabi before him, Assad tried to lower the tax burden to bring these elites onto his side and to appoint capable and popular locals, Mawali and non-Muslim alike. But his ability to keep taxes low turned out to be limited, partly at the urging of the caliph who expected tax revenue from these rich lands, and partly because now that Khurasan was a separate governorship, the treasury of Iraq was no longer supporting it. So Assad was forced to go back on some of his tax-cutting pledges. This, of course, did not make him popular. There's nothing quite like a weakened overlord reneging on tax cuts to fan the flames of revolt. And so, north of the Amudarya, virtually the whole territory of Transoxiana rose up in revolt against the Umayyads within two years of the Day of Thirst and rallied to Suluk. In many ways, this was a return to normalcy for the Sogdin elites. For generations, These Silk Road city-states had lived and indeed prospered under the hegemony of Turkish nomads to the north. This gave Suluk legitimacy to these elites. He wasn't seen as some totally alien figure, but rather as part of a tradition stretching back as far as anyone could remember. Suluk was in essence offering a return to the past. Only King Gurak in Samarkand remained loyal to the Arabs, and even he was wavering. Samarkand, Bukhara, and the two nearby fortresses of Kumarja and Dabusiya became little islands of Arab control in a sea of revolt. A revolt directed and supported by the Turgesh Khanate and its formidable leader. But it is also important to note that there is no indication at all that Suluk was motivated by some sort of ideological dislike of Islam this was not about defending traditional religion. It was about securing the power of the Turgesh over their rightful vassals. Even in the great city of Samarkand, the authority of the Arabs was weakening. In 725, shortly after the Day of Thirst, a Turkish raiding party of 7,000 men was able to strike the city's hinterland and carry out a successful raid. The prestige of the Umayyads in their new faith sank even lower. King Gurak no doubt wondered what his new Arab allies were even good for. And remember, he had submitted to Arab rule and become an ally only after the Tang failed to send him aid to beat back the invaders. In Khorasan, Assad realized that before he could try to regain the lands north of the Amu Darya from the Turgesh and their Sogdian vassals, he had to reassert Arab power in Khorasan and Balkh. So, beginning in 725, he began leading the Arab armies on campaigns south of the Amu Darya and into the areas just over the river to bring back the locals into line. But these local rulers in Khorasan and Balkh knew that there was now a powerful leader they could appeal to. And one of them, the king of a land called Khutal, sent messengers to Suluk asking for aid. Now Suluk was not going to rest on his laurels after the Day of Thirst. He remained in Sogdiana, reassuring his Sogdian allies and vassals who had rebelled against the Umayyads and followed his call to go to war. And when he heard from the leader of Khutal, he assembled his armies and rode south. Khutal lies on what is today the border region of Tajikistan and Afghanistan. I've put a map up on the podcast website to make this easier to follow, but this valley sits at the headwaters of the Amudarya River, with the Amudarya running right through it hearing that suluk was approaching the region assad decided that he did not have the strength to face the turgesh khan and his armies so he fled back across the Amu Darya so as not have to face suluk in battle while this preserved his armies it was a grievous loss of face and so the reputation of suluk khan and the turks continued to grow encouraged by the seeming weakness of assad and the strength of suluk resistance to the arabs in the region spread Another local kingdom was able to rise up and, with the assistance of the Turks, defeat a small contingent of the Arabs and maintain their newly won independence. The history of al-Tabari says that when Assad dragged his army back to Khurasan from Balkh, the people said to him, You have come from Khutalan. With a spoiled face you have come. Broken-spirited you have come back. The father of the fight had secured yet another victory against the Arabs. Then, in 726, Assad's armies were again defeated in Balkh by the Turks, who campaigned even farther south across the Darya than they had before, which further dented the reputation of the Arabs. So things are really not looking up for the Umayyads in the region at this point. But then, Suluk was drawn back to the east and was forced to briefly campaign against the Tang in that same year. He was drawn away by an insult to a Turgesh envoy by the Tang court. Suluk felt that by not treating his embassy with proper courtesy, the Tang had dishonored him. Additionally, the Tang officials in the city of Kucha in the Tarim Basin confiscated over a thousand horses belonging to Turgesh merchants. Incensed by this disrespect, Suluk left Sogdiana and galloped east. He reached out to his Tibetan allies and, together, they launched a massive raid across the Tarim Basin. Seeing how dangerous the Turgesh were, The Tang quickly made up for their insults to Suluk with apologies, gifts, and tribute. Relations between the Turgesh and the Tang then returned to their prior equilibrium. The Tang had in fact come to see Suluk as a critical ally of a sort in stopping the Muslim conquest of Central Asia, which, as we will come to see, the Tang still harbored the hope of eventually dominating again. And now that the Tang understood that the reach of the Khan could be felt even when he was not on their side of the mountains, Suluk made plans to return to Sogdiana and his fight with the Arabs in the following year. There is some indication that during Suluk's absence, Assad may have had some limited success in enforcing Arab rule over the kingdom of Qutal. But if so, it just wasn't nearly enough. The Turgesh had broken Umayyad control north of the Amu Darya, and even south of it, Suluk Khan's raids could not be stopped, and the Arab reputation had taken a beating. The local lords and elites were coming to feel that the Turks, not the Arabs, were the real military power in the region, and they acted accordingly. Thus the east continued to fall from the Umayyads, and so Assad suffered the same fate as his predecessor al Kilabi. Tired of defeat, tired of revolt in these eastern lands, the caliph recalled him. He was replaced by Ashras ibn Abdullah al-Sulami. Ashras was dispatched to Khorasan to stabilize the rapidly devolving situation. He was instructed to put down the rebellion by whatever means necessary. When he was appointed, Ashras reportedly said, O people of Balkh, you have nicknamed me the Raven, and by God, I will certainly send your hearts astray. Like his predecessors, Ashras knew that the only way to bring Sogdiana back under Umayyad control and to secure Arab rule was to gain support among the local converts to Islam, the Mawali. But he also desperately needed money in order to fight Suluk Khan and the Turgesh. He needed funds to put down this rebellion once and for all. And these two aims were in conflict. The higher the taxes, the less the support. The lower the taxes, the less the resources. So he tried to thread the needle. In seven twenty nine, Ashraf sent his messengers north of the Amudarya to Samarkand and Bukhara, the lone Transoxian kingdoms remaining under Arab hegemony and overlordship. They announced a change to the taxation system. See, the Arabs had two main taxes that they levied on conquered peoples. One was the jizya, which we have previously discussed—that head tax on non-Muslims in lieu of military service. The other was the Kharaj, a land tax on the nobility. Now in order to escape the Jizya, a lot of the local Sogdian elites had become Muslims, but many of them only nominally. Ashras, in order to curry favor with these Mawali, wanted to lessen the tax burden on the local converts as a way to buy their support. But as he needed money, he didn't want all of the nominal Muslims, these fake Muslims, to get the benefit. And indeed Ashras, like many of the Umayyads, saw all non-Arab Muslims as fake Muslims, an attitude that would eventually lead to the downfall of the Caliphate. So he wrote a letter to the local Arab official, saying, I have heard that the inhabitants of al sult and their likes have not become Muslims by their own desire, but rather have only entered into Islam to escape the jizya. Therefore, see who has been circumcised, performs the ritual obligations, practices Islam rightly, and can recite a chapter from the Qur'an. From him alone lift the burden of the Kharaj. But news came back to Ashras that it was just too hard to figure out who was a genuine Muslim. So Ashras wrote back and basically said, just go ahead and collect the jizya from everyone that the tax collectors were used to collecting it from in the past. And predictably, this caused a huge uproar. A lot of these local people had converted for the tax benefits. And now those tax benefits were essentially being withdrawn from anyone who wasn't considered a good enough Muslim in the eyes of the Arabs. And for those who had converted out of faith, it was an even bigger slap in the face. Being told, hey, you're not really a Muslim, despite what you believe, we, the Arabs, are always going to be better Muslims than you. And this then fed into local resentment, even among those Mawali who were considered to be good Muslims. They thought, why must it always be the Arabs who decide who is good enough? All of this caused 7,000 Mawali nobles to refuse to pay the tax, and they even had supporters among the local Arab settlers. The result of all of this was a tax dispute turning into a full fledged revolt in Bukhara. As we will see in future episodes, this resentment of the converts and the provincial Arab settlers in Khorasan on the one hand, and the Umayyad state on the other, will, in time, end very, very badly for the Umayyads. It is from these seeds that the coming Abbasid revolution will spring. And these seeds were planted because of the Umayyad need to defeat Suluk Khan and the Turgesh. But for now, Ashras had a bigger problem on his hands. He couldn't allow these people to defy him. It would totally undermine his authority. And so he sent his men out across the Amudarya to put down this new nascent rebellion among the Mawali. But in doing this, his emissaries humiliated these nobles. At a time when noble honor was incredibly important. And this would prove to be a terrible miscalculation. Al-Tabari says, His agents pressed on the collection of the kharaj insistently, treating the Iranian nobles with disregard. They were made to stand while their clothes were torn and their belts were tied around their necks. The agents also took the jizya from among those of the common people who had become Muslims. As a result, the people of al-Sugd and Bukhara became apostates, calling upon the Turks to send an army to support them. Suluk Khan, of course, jumped at this request by the Mawali of Bukhara. This was a perfect opportunity to expand his power, to drive the Arabs back and entrench his rule over Transoxiana. So he gathered up his hordes in his heartland in today's Kyrgyzstan and began marching south and west towards the Amudarya. Ashras belatedly realized that he had made a huge mistake with this taxation idea, and that he had driven those few Sogdians who remained loyal to him into the arms of Suluk Khan, and so he quickly gathered up his armies to go and defeat the Turks. But Suluk Khan and the Turgesh beat Ashras and the Arabs to the river. With their Sogdian allies by their sides, the Turks sent raiders across the river to harass the Arabs. As on the Day of Thirst, Suluk focused on the Arab supply trains and mounts. He sent Turkish raiders to raid the baggage train and capture or kill the pack animals. The Arabs were able to drive the Turks off, but not without casualties, and the Turks had again managed to capture and destroy a portion of the baggage train before dispersing back to the steppe. Ashras finally managed to cross the Amudarya and made for the city of Bukhara. Now Bukhara sits on an oasis, and it is closer to the Amudarya than Samarkand. So Ashras ordered King Gurak of Samarkand, his lone Sogdian ally now, to march towards Bukhara to join his forces there. Together, they would then put down the rebellion in Bukhara and use the city as a base to reassert Arab authority throughout the region. As he approached Bukhara, Ashras ordered the army to camp in the town of Baikand, a suburb of Bukhara but at a remove from the water of the oasis, the only water for miles. As they set up camp, Suluk and the Turgesh army appeared again and encircled the Arabs. They cut the Arabs off from their water source. For a second time, Suluk intended to use thirst to break his enemies. Al-Tabari says, Ashras and the Muslims stayed in their camp that day and night. When they arose in the morning, their water being exhausted, they dug for water, but they did not find any and became thirsty. Ashras knew that the only way was forward. Despite his army's dehydration and weakness, he ordered that they muster and push towards the city, the only place to find water. But Suluk had of course assembled his army, composed of both the Turgesh and the Sogdian vassals, between the Arabs and the water, their only hope of redemption. Desperately, Ashras ordered the attack. One of his officers, a man named Al-Harith ibn Suraj, reportedly urged his men on, saying, O people, Being killed by the sword is nobler in this world and greater in the reward of Allah than to die by thirst. Now don't forget that name, Al-Harith ibn Suraysh, as he will become increasingly important to our story. The Arabs fought bravely at Baikand, and the fight was vicious. But then Suluk ordered a retreat. His army turned and fled the field, leaving the Arabs a route to the water. Likely, he was planning the same sort of trap that had worked on the day of thirst. When the parched enemy scrambled to the water to slake their thirst and thus became disordered, he would pounce. But one of the Arab commanders had been with the army on the day of thirst and told Ashras, I am more knowledgeable about fighting these Turks than you are, and convinced him to order the army forward to continue pressing the attack. Several of the Arab cavalry units were able to drive off the Turkish attack and prevent yet another day of thirst. But Ashras had only prevented a total disaster. He had sustained massive casualties and now was trapped in Bukhara. And it was now that Gurak, the lone Sogdian ally of the Muslims, the king of Samarkand, decided to hedge his bets. The might of Suluk, the father of the fight, convinced him that the fight could very well ultimately favor the Turks. His son, having marched that Samarkand army to Bukhara to aid the Arabs, now defected and joined Suluk. Certainly. He did this with at least his father's tacit approval. Ashras had been betrayed. He sat dejected, trapped, in the city of Bukhara. Suluk now felt that the time had come to break Arab control in Transoxiana. Now that Samarkand had switched sides, the only Arab forces in the region were either trapped in Bukhara or manning those two small fortresses between Samarkand and Bukhara, Kumarja and Dabusiya. So Suluk left a portion of his armies and his Sogdian allies to keep Ashras and his army bottled up in Bukhara and travelled east with the remainder to take the fortress of Kamarja. Now his Sogdian allies had informed Suluk that the fortress was lightly held and could be easily taken, but this would prove to be untrue, and the siege of Kumarja would be both long and brutal. According to the Arab sources, the Turgesh army managed to approach the area around the fortress unseen by taking advantage of the terrain which is kind of a classic step move. The Arab army, notified by Ashras that the Turks were marching towards Samarkand, sallied forth to confront the Turks in the field, but they were unaware that the Turks were nearby, and that Suluk's goal was actually to capture the fortress, not pass it by. Having heard from his scouts that the Arabs were nearby, only at the last moment did Suluk reveal his armies, which seemed to spring upon the Arabs from nowhere. As the history of al-Tabari says, The Turks camped and made ready, while the Muslims were unaware of them. When this, which surprised them, happened, the Muslims climbed up on the hill, and suddenly there was a mountain of steel. The Muslim army then regretted that it had come out. The Arabs now realized that they had made a mistake. There was no way that they could defeat this large army in the field. Their only hope was to get back to Kumarja and hold the fort. When the Turks saw that the Arabs were attempting to slip back to the fortress, they launched an attack against the Arab army. The Arabs broke and fled back to Kumarja, but only a portion of the Arab army was able to make it inside. The Turks advanced up to the very walls of the fortress, even taking the trenches outside the walls, before the Arab army burned the bridges over the trenches in desperation. The survivors of the Arab army were now trapped in the fortress of Kumarja just as Ashras was now trapped in Bukhara. But the fortress was not lightly defended as Suluk had been led to believe. Instead, it was held by a large and well-trained Muslim army, composed of both Arabs and the Sogdian converts. Suluk decided that it would be better to come to some sort of accommodation with the defenders than try to force the city. Reportedly, Khosrau IV, the grandson of the last Sassanid Shah Yazdigir III, Rode out to the fortress, as I briefly mentioned the last time he had left the Tang court and joined Suluk's court in a vain attempt to regain his throne. He approached the walls of Kumarja and rather presumptively said, "O oh Arabs, why do you kill yourselves when I have brought the Khan to restore my kingdom to me and at the same time obtain safe conduct for you?" The Arabs then reviled and mocked him upon which he slunk back to Suluk and out of the history books forever. His quixotic quest to regain his grandfather's throne, for all intents and purposes, over. Now, Khosrow was definitely overstating his role. I mean, he didn't bring anyone anywhere, and the odds of Suluk giving him back Iran were basically zero. But his offer was genuine. Suluk, through the Sassanid pretender, was offering the Arab defenders a way out. When they rejected his first messenger, he sent another messenger a local Sogdian noble, along with his own relatives, to again give them the Khan's terms. He also brought with him captured Arab leaders taken from Bukhara and the finest Arab frontier horses to show the Arab defenders that the war was over and there was no point in holding out. Suluk's terms were that if the Arab army would mutiny and defect to him, he would provide them with a stipend and treat them with due honor. The Arabs rejected this, reportedly saying, This is a matter that will not come together, for how are the Arabs, who are wolves, be with the Turks, who are sheep? Clearly, they had not heard the legend of Ergenikon, and indeed it would be the Turks who would come to be identified with the wolf. His terms rejected, Suluk then began preparing to sack Kumarja. As the bridge across the moat to the fortress walls had been burned, Suluk ordered that the moat be filled with green wood so that the Turks could ride over the moat, and so that the Arabs could not burn it. For six days, the Turks piled green wood into the moat. The Arabs kept up a constant barrage of arrows from the walls of the fortress that killed many Turkish soldiers. Then, on the sixth day, the Arabs were able to set most of the moat aflame, aided by a strong wind that they attributed to Allah's will. Suluk was now getting frustrated with the siege, which was dragging on for way, way too long. After the fire in the moat wasted the efforts of a week's work by the Turks, as the day grew long on the sixth day, Suluk ordered a hundred of the Arab hostages he held forward, including a venerable Arab noble. In full sight of the defenders on the walls, Suluk had them executed, a sign of what awaited the Muslim defenders if they would not yield. The Arab commanders conferred quickly among themselves, though some no doubt advised that it would be best to surrender it was decided instead that a counterexample must be made. The Arabs marched out 200 of their own Turkish captives onto the walls and then ordered that they be executed. But the Turkish captives resisted and began to fight viciously with their would-be executioners. Seeing this, the Turkish armies rode forward and the area around the gate to the fortress became the place of a brutal and bloody struggle. Arabs and Turks fell in battle before sunfall when the fighting blessedly ceased but the Turks had not managed to force the gate or to rescue their hostages. That night, Suluk was cold fury. How much time and blood had been spent so far and for nothing. He summoned in his Sogdian allies, the nobles who had told him that Kumarja would be a quick victory, and harangued them. You claim that there were fifty donkeys in this town and we would take it in five days. The five days have now become two months. The next day, Suluk ordered that these Sogdians attack, promising them each two Arab slave girls as war booty if they succeeded. Disgusting from our perspective, of course, but rewarding soldiers with captured women was seen until very recently as totally normal behavior in war. The past was really a barbaric place in a lot of ways. But despite this motivation, the attack by Suluk's Sogdian allies failed. Reportedly, they attacked a breach in the walls that led into a house where the house's owner himself slew the attacking Sogdian prince. The Arabs had also set up a trench and a barricade made by a wooden water basin over the night, behind which they sat and fired arrows against this new wave of attack, along with the relentless volleys from the walls. Suluk himself was hit by an arrow, but wearing his great Tibetan war helmet he was not harmed. Suluk realized that the siege of Kumarja was becoming an increasingly costly and bloody stalemate. Conquering this fortress would take a great deal of blood and time, likely more than the fortress was worth. There was no way that the fortress contained riches worth what he had already spent. At the same time, he couldn't leave. It would be a blow to his reputation, and it would leave a Muslim army in place on the road between Samarkand and Bukhara. At the same time, the Arab leadership realized that there was no way for them to actually stop a full assault from the Turgesh. The Arabs were far, far outnumbered by the Turkish warriors. And while the fortress hadn't fallen, they had sustained heavy losses. If Suluk really wanted to, he could eventually destroy them. And Suluk knew that the Arabs knew this. So Suluk sent a messenger to the defenders, saying, It is not our practice to withdraw from a city on which we have descended without conquering it or without its defenders leaving. But the Arab commander answered, It is not of our religion to give over our hands until we are killed, so do what seems best to you. Suluk then offered the Arabs a choice, stay and die or leave the city and live, and he guaranteed them their safe passage to wherever they wanted to go. He also swore that he too would leave the fortress and not take it over, that he was eager to leave such a cursed place. Suluk said, choose for yourself whether to depart from this city. The Arabs discussed amongst themselves and ultimately decided that they had to flee. There was no point in staying and dying in Kumarja. So they approached Suluk and said that they would accept his terms. The Arab army decided to flee to Dabusiya, the other great fortress in the region, as it was closer to Samarkand, and because the people of Samarkand advised them to go there. Remember, King Gurak's own son had switched sides to aid the Turks. Who knew what was happening in Samarkand? But the Arabs were afraid that the Turks would kill them on the road, so they sent a message to Suluk, offering a hostage exchange to secure the obligations of both sides. Suluk agreed and the Arabs chose as their hostage the Yabgu of the Turgesh, a Turkish prince named Kulchar. Now Kulchar was a relative of Suluk's, and he was one of Suluk's greatest generals and nobles. According to the Muslim sources, he was a man of great intelligence and great honor. In time, he would come to succeed Suluk Khan, though not to Suluk's liking. After they exchanged hostages, both Arabs and Turks kept the terms of their deal. Suluk was no doubt eager to leave this cursed place. A portion of the Turkish armies marched with the Arabs to Dabusiya, shadowing them the whole way. The hostages were kept in view of each other the whole time. The Muslim sources say, They had mounted behind every Turkish man a man of the Arabs with a dagger. Each Turk was wearing only a gown with full sleeves, and thus they led them along. The siege of Kumarsha had lasted 58 days. 58 days of suffering and bloodshed. The Arabs would remember it as a great victory. Yet it was a victory in the way that Dunkirk was a victory. It was a well fought and glorious evacuation. And like Churchill said, wars are not won with evacuations. The fame of the defense of Kumarja spread across the lands of Islam, but it is telling that the Arabs considered their ability to merely withstand the might of the Turks to be such a great victory. In reality, though Suluk was somewhat chastened after Kumarja, he had in fact achieved his main goal. Though it had been messy, One of the two great Arab fortresses of the region was now gone. His control over Transoxiana was now cemented. The Arabs now held only the cities of Bukhara and Samarkand and the small fortress of Dabusiya in the Samarkand suburbs. Tiny little islands of Arab rule in a vast Turgesh sea. It was now that Gurak, king of Samarkand, came firmly over to Suluk's side. The Arabs may have held the city of Samarkand, But now even its king had turned on them, and with his defection even the rural hinterlands beyond the walls of the city were now lost to the Arabs. The entire rest of the land beyond the Amu Darya had slipped from their hands, and Suluk Khan, Abu Muzahim, the father of the fight, was now the overlord of all of it. After the failure of his expedition and the siege of Kumarja, Ashras was recalled in 729, just as his predecessors had been after their defeats at the hands of the father of the fight. He was replaced by a man named Al-Junaid, a competent and capable general who had been greatly successful in the Arab conquests in India. The situation in Transoxiana was going so badly for the Arabs that Al-Junaid needed an escort of 7,000 men just to cross the river and reach Bukhara and the remnants of the Arab armies, all in an area that had been completely under Arab dominion a mere two years earlier. Al-Junaid was indeed attacked by the Turgesh, but he was able to repel the attack after a long and difficult fight. Suluk reportedly said of Al-Junaid after his failure to kill him this time, This is an easy living boy who defeated me this year, but I will destroy him in a future year. Which would prove to be some pretty epic foreshadowing. We also know that Muslim sources say of this time that no governor of Khorasan should cross the river with less than 50,000 men. Which really more than puts to rest the notion that anyone other than Suluk Khan was in control north of the river. The Turgesh also continued to raid south across the river in earnest, striking into Balkh and Khwarizm, the area of the river delta where the Amu Darya flows into the Aral Sea, and uprisings against Arab rule continued, with new revolts backed by Suluk breaking out in Khwarizm and Balkh, in lands that the Arabs had ruled for decades at this point. Suluk then made a critical decision. With the Arabs on the defense everywhere, he would finish them off and end their rule north of the Amu He would attack Samarkand, the greatest city of Sogdiana and the home of the largest Arab garrison in the region. Samarkand was the key to the lingering Arab presence beyond the Amu It was their last real toehold in Sogdiana. Without Samarkand, there was simply no way for the Arabs to have any chance at holding the region. If he could take the city, He would solve his Arab problem once and for all. They would have to start again all over, start again from south of the river. So early in 730, Suluk assembled a massive horde and launched it against the walls of Samarkand. He brought with him King Gurak, his new ally, aiming to restore him to the capital city of his kingdom, now under Turkish hegemony. And so Al-Junaid woke up one fine morning to a message sent with all haste from the governor of Samarkand. The Khan has mobilized the Turks. I went out against them, but I was unable to defend the outer wall of Samarkand. Help! Now this whole situation was intolerable for Al-Junaid. He had been given the command of Khorasan by the Caliph with the instruction that he was to defeat the father of the fight and restore Arab rule over Transaxiana. This was just not possible if Samarkand fell but he had been forced to send tens of thousands of troops off to Balkh and to Khwarizm to put down the revolts backed by Suluk. And he had spread his remaining forces out to protect against Turkish raiding across the river, so he was seriously short of manpower now. Additionally, there were tensions among the Arab tribal confederations that made up the armies, most importantly, tensions between the Umayyads and the local settler Arabs. Nevertheless, al had to try to relieve Samarkand. Scraping together all of the Arab troops and Sogdian allies he could get his hands on, Aljunayd was able to assemble an army of about forty thousand men, ten thousand short of the number he had been advised was the minimum for a governor of Khorasan to cross the river and enter what was now the domain of the father of the fight. With his army assembled, Aljunayd crossed the river and made for the city of Bukhara, but once there he learned that the Turgesh had taken over the whole of the road leading from Bukhara to Samarkand. The old Persian royal road, built millennia before by the Achaemenid Persian Empire, along the course of the Zaravshan river between the two great cities. To take this road would be to risk certain destruction by the vastly superior Turkish forces. So al instead took a more southern route, through the barren steppes, towards the city of Kishish south of Samarkand, today called Shacher Sabs. But Suluk knew that al would choose this route And so he had sent contingents of Turkish troops out along the road to spoil every well that the Arab army would come to. Every time the Arabs came to a well on this barren and waterless steppe, they found it spoiled, full of rotting animals and feces, and completely unable to be drunk. Yet again, Suluk was going to use thirst to break the Arabs. By the time Al Junaid's armies got to Kashish, they were exhausted and parched. Once there, they had a choice to make. One road to Samarkand led through a wide plain, and the other through a narrow gorge through the mountains separating Samarkand from Kashish. The majority of the Arab commanders wanted to go through the plain, not through this narrow mountain road. But one of them, the most senior commander, said, Being killed by the sword is better than being killed by fire. The road of the plain has trees and tall grasses in it, not having been cultivated for years, so that these by now have overgrown each other. If you meet the Khan, he will set fire to all of that, and so we will be killed by the fire and the smoke. Better to take the road of the steep ascent, on which there will at least be some equality between us and them. And so Aljunaid determined to take the path through the narrow gorge, this defile, which would come to give the coming disaster its name the Battle of the Defile. Because, of course, Suluk quickly learned of Aljunaid's plans and prepared to set a trap for the Arabs in this narrow gorge. Al-Junaid decided that the pass had to be taken in stages. He would send through a vanguard made up of cavalry to secure the far end of the pass, then send through the main army composed of both infantry and cavalry, followed later by the main part of the baggage train guarded by further infantry. This decision, and the decision to take the road through the pass in the first place, was deeply unpopular in the army, and tensions between the local Khorasani Arabs and the outsider Al-Junaid, as well as between the Arab tribes within the army, grew a harbinger of the tensions between the Khurasani Arab settlers and the Umayyad state that would eventually destroy the caliphate. And so, under a cloud of mutual distrust and apprehension, the vanguard and the main army began to slowly make their way through the narrow gorge. They marched warily, eyes darting to the steep cliffs, searching for signs of a Turkish ambush. But none seemed to come. As night fell, The army camped in the gorge, a day's march from Samarkand. On the morning of the second day, the Arab army began moving again, led by a vanguard as the main army began to disassemble the camp. As the Arab vanguard made its way through the gorge, they suddenly saw arrayed against them the forces of Suluk Khan, supported by his Sogdian allies. Suluk ordered a lightning attack against the vanguard, separated now from the army which had just left the camp. The vanguard was overwhelmed by the ferocious attack, but some Arabs managed to flee and turn back to raise the alarm, while, in the words of Al-Tabari, the Turks followed them, coming at them from every direction. Aljunid looked up as he was stopping for lunch of all things, to see one of the Arab commanders of the vanguard riding desperately up to him, screaming, Return the troops to the camp, for a numerous force has come upon you. But there was no time to return to the camp. Working hurriedly, in desperation, Al-Junaid began to organize his armies to defend themselves. He ordered the Arab cavalry to the wings, with each of the Arab tribal groups taking one wing, and he had the infantry quickly erect a rough earthwork in front of the center. Suluk and the Turgesh army soon appeared in the narrow pass in front of Al-Junaid and the Muslims. Suluk quickly ordered an attack on the right wing of the Arabs. The Arab cavalry was no match for the Turkish steppe warriors, and they were pushed back the right wing collapsed under the furious volley of the Turkish arrows. In this desperate environment, under the face of a withering Turkish attack, the tensions and tribal rivalries within the Arab forces began to bubble over. As al Junaid rode up to the standard-bearer of the right wing, the Arab holder of the standard rebuked him, saying, If we win, it will be for your benefit. If we perish, you will not weep over us. By my life if we win and I survive, I will never speak a word to you. The standard-bearer was then cut down by the Turkish arrows. But al-Junaid was able to stabilize the center and the left, stopping the collapse of the right wing from turning into a total rout. He did this by ordering waves of counterattacks from his left-wing cavalry to strike Suluk's armies. The Muslim histories provide long lists of Muslim nobles who perished in these charges. I'm going to read one of the better ones. On that day… Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Haudan fought while on a sorrel horse wearing a gilded coat of mail. He charged seven times, killing a man in every charge. Then he returned to his station. Those in his part of the battlefront were awed by him. Therefore the Khan's interpreter called out to him, The Khan says to you, Do not advance, but come over to us. We will reject our idol which we worship, and we will worship you instead. Muhammad declared, I am fighting so that you will leave the worship of idols and worship God alone. He then fought on and was martyred. Despite sustaining heavy losses, these charges forestalled a total collapse of the Arab army. But they were not able to drive off Suluk and the Turks, who continued to put pressure on the Arabs using their steppe tactics, riding in, unleashing a volley of arrows before retreating back, striking groups of stragglers in lightning cavalry charges before melting away. Then, down the valley from the direction they had come, the Arabs saw a dust cloud approaching. It was yet another Turkish army, coming to attack their rear. Suluk, of course, had encircled them. Thinking quickly, Al-Junaid ordered his men to fight on foot, even the cavalry. He knew that his troops were no match for the Turks in the saddle, but maybe they could use the narrow pass to their advantage. Al-Tabari says, Al-Junaid's herald called out, to the ground, to the ground, and dismounted, as did the troops also. Then al herald called out, Let every commander dig a trench in front of his position. And thus the men dug trenches. The Arabs now stood behind their hastily dug trenches, armed with spears and swords. Under al direction, the men formed a spear wall behind the trenches. al even ordered the army's slaves, its cookmen and servants, to fashion spears out of tent poles and set themselves up in the spear wall. With a trench in front of the spear wall, and the sheer face of the gorge to their back, the Arab army was now truly dug in. It would be very difficult, if not impossible, for a cavalry charge to dislodge them. Suluk eyed the spear wall warily. The fighting had already been hard. The Arabs had put up a stronger defense than he had expected, and they had not broken. They had remained organized. It's really when an army broke, fleeing in terror from their mounted foes, that the Turks could really use their step warriors to hunt them down and destroy them. But this narrow pass was limiting his mobility, and the Muslims were proving far too cohesive to break entirely. Though the Muslim army could no longer launch counter-attacks from behind their trenches, they also could not be easily dislodged. After a couple testing sorties, Suluk decided to pull back as the sun set. He ordered his armies to cease their attacks and to prepare for a renewed assault the next day. That night, as the Arab troops turned these hastily made trenchworks into a battlefield camp under the watchful eyes of the Turks, al-Junaid sat anxiously, thinking about what he could do. He sent messengers out under cover of darkness, both back to kashish where they had come from and to Samarkand. The messengers to Kashish warned of the Turks and ordered the remaining Arabs in the rear guard guarding the baggage train not to proceed through the mountain pass. The messengers to Samarkand begged for aid from the local Arab garrison. Ordering its commander Saura to launch a diversionary attack so that this army would be able to escape the pass. little did Aljanide know, but his messenger to Kashish was already in vain. Suluk had, of course made sure to attack the main baggage train simultaneously with his attack on Al-Junaid's forces. Though the Muslim sources don't really dwell on it, it is reported that the entire baggage train was destroyed by Suluk's armies, and that the commander of the rear army stood firm against the enemy and thus suffered martyrdom al was now stranded in the pass without supplies. As the sun rose on the next day, al surveyed his bleak options. He was informed that the baggage had been lost and the rear army destroyed. There was no way back. The only way out was forward. Slowly, keeping as close together as possible, the Arab army began plodding towards Samarkand. At midday, Suluk's army again approached, but he couldn't find a good opening or a good position to attack. He sent sorties out, testing the Arabs, striking quickly and then returning to the main Turgesh army. Suluk tried to draw the Arabs into a trap. He tried using the classic steppe tactic of the feigned retreat to get the Arabs to break from their tight formation and chase down his troops, whereupon his fearsome steppe riders could turn around and crush them. But the Arabs didn't bite. One of the Arab commanders had great experience fighting the Turks and reportedly told al-Junaid, I have practiced warfare for 70 years. If you charge them, going up to them, you will be defeated. Rather, leave them alone until they draw near. Suluk was impressed. According to the Muslim sources, he said, The Arabs, when they are put in difficult straits, defy death. Therefore, leave them alone until they come out, and do not oppose them, for you cannot stand up to them. Now, that's clearly a bit of an invention. If anything, Suluk had proven pretty well that it was the Arabs who couldn't stand up to the Turks. Meanwhile, in Samarkand, al messenger was having a very hard time convincing the Samarkand garrison, led by Saura to come to the aid of Al-Junaid. Saura knew that he was being asked to undertake a suicide mission. To ride out with a small force against Suluk Khan as a distraction was like a sheep breaking from the herd to distract a wolf. It was not going to end well for the sheep, regardless of what happened to the herd. So he did the totally human thing and sent a response back to al saying basically, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But al insisted, sending him a message which I just love. He wrote back to him, saying, O oh, son of a stinking mother, you will come out, for if not, I will send to you Shadad ibn Khalid al-Bahili, who was Saurah's greatest enemy. Therefore come, put someone at Farouk Shad with five hundred bowmen and stay close to the water and do not leave it. And so Saurah dejectedly agreed, leaving behind a skeleton garrison in the city and departing with twelve thousand men on his suicide mission. To draw away the attention of Suluk Khan. Now Suluk of course had spies all around Samarkand, and was quickly alerted that an Arab force had left the city. As Saura approached he got within seven kilometers of aljunayd's army, still slowly limping out of the pass. Suluk had to deploy a portion of his forces to defeat Saurah, but was reluctant to pull too many troops away from shadowing the main army, still looking for an opportunity to strike. The day was exceedingly hot and dry, and both the Turkish troops and Saudra's small army of twelve thousand began to tire. King Gurak reportedly advised suluk O Khan, your day is a hot day, therefore do not fight until the sun is hot upon them while they are wearing weapons which weigh them down. So Suluk pulled his troops back and managed to manoeuvre them between the Arabs and the nearby river. Then he ordered that the long, dry grasses be set alight. The flames began rushing towards Saudra's army now cut off from the water. Saura began to despair. He called in his advisors, one of whom came up with a relatively good idea to follow traditional Umayyad tactics against steppe archers and form an infantry spear wall and slowly march towards the Turks with the cavalry in the wings to prevent Turkish hit-and-run attacks. But Saura instead said, I am of the opinion that I should collect the cavalry along with whom I think can fight and strike the Turks, whether I come through safely or perish. So that's what he did and of course he perished. There are simply no equals to steppe-mounted warriors, and the Arabs were cut down to a man. Al-Tabari says, The Muslims were scattered. The dust cloud cleared while the men were so scattered so that the Turks cut them off and slew them. None of the Muslims escaped, save 2,000, though some say only 1,000. Saura himself fell in this mad and reckless charge. Saura's diversion had proven to be the suicide mission he feared it would be. But it also proved to be the diversion al hoped it would be, though al was not ultimately able to use it as he wanted to. As Suluk's army was crushing Sauru's doomed charge, al decided to try and make a break for it. Even if the whole army couldn't make it, he himself could at least personally get to the safety of Samarkand. He mounted up and prepared to ride with all haste. But his generals just weren't having it. They were not going to let their commander flee and leave the army like this. One grabbed his bridle, forcefully, saying, By God you will not go. Rather, you will most certainly make camp whether you like it or not. We will not let you destroy us owing to this. Make camp. So al seeing that there was no way for him to flee, ordered the armies to make camp and prepare for a Turkish assault. The assault came before the camp was finished. Seeing that this was his last chance to break the Arabs before they made it to Samarkand, Suluk unleashed his armies on the unfinished Arab camp. Suluk himself led the attack on the vanguard, which broke and ran under the fury of the Turkish assault. Suluk then led the attack on the main army's left wing, while his yabgu, Kulchor, led the attack on the right. The Arab army began collapsing under the ferocious Turkish assault. Suluk could taste victory. But then, in desperation... Al-Junaid promised freedom to any of the Arab army's slaves who would fight. Motivated by this promise of emancipation, the slaves transformed into desperate and fearsome fighters. I mean, think about this from their perspective. Before this promise of manumission, it didn't really matter to them at all who won. If the Turks won, they would just take the slaves as war plunder. If the Arabs won, they would remain slaves of the Arabs. Did it matter to them at all whether it was a Turkish hand or an Arab hand holding the whip? Of course not. But now, with al promise, if the Turks won, they would remain slaves. If the Arabs won, they would be free. Al-Tabari says, At this the slaves fought so fiercely that people were astonished by it. One of them would take a saddle blanket, cut an opening in it for his head, and put it around himself to protect himself with it. The slaves battled with tent poles turned into spears forming an ad hoc spear wall, the Turkish charge was stopped. Suluk, likely astonished by this resistance by the slaves of the Arabs, ordered one last charge, one last charge to break the Arab army and force it to rout, whereupon it would be destroyed. But the slaves did not break. Their desire for freedom saved Al army. Suluk was forced to call off the attack. Al-Junaid and the remnants of the Arab army were able to limp into Samarkand. The Battle of the Defile was over. An Arab poet, Ibn al-Sijif, wrote of the Battle of the Defile, Remember the orphans lost in the land of the Turks, emaciated as if they were partridges in their enclosure. He then continued, They met regiments from the Khan, marked out with banners, for whom the expanse of the plain and the mountain were narrow. After they had looked upon them for a little without crying out, they held up their hands to God in supplication. Muslim histories try to dress up the Battle of the Defile as a victory, but if it was, it was a Pyrrhic victory, one in which the winner had actually lost. A tactical victory that is a strategic loss. Yes, Suluk failed in stopping Al-Junaid from reaching Samarkand, but he had succeeded in utterly crippling the Arab forces in Sogdiana north of the river. Al-Junaid now sat dejected in Samarkand with a small and exhausted army, one almost broken by the Turks. He had lost his baggage train and had been forced to manumit all of the army's slaves. His army would not be able to operate for a long time, and he himself had been revealed to be a coward in the eyes of his troops, one who had tried to flee to the city to save himself. A more truthful Arab assessment of the battle is probably in the words of the poet Ibn Irs, reproaching Al-Junaid. How many a resolute warrior is buried in the defile, robust of powers, a possessor of strength, praiseworthy, who sought relief in the disaster and engaged blindly in the clamor, neither fear struck, feeble, nor holding back. If only you were on the day of the defile in a pit, covered over with hard mud. War and its sons play with you, as hawks play with quails coming to water. Your heart flew, owing to the battle, out of fear. Your flying heart will not return. Suluk now could think bigger and he began to think of how he could not only conquer further both east and west, but how he could destabilize and weaken his powerful enemy, this great Umayyad caliphate. Remember how earlier in this episode, I told you not to forget the name Al-Harith ibn Suraj, that he would become very important to our story? Well, that's because Al-Harith ibn Suraj is now on his way to becoming a full-fledged revolutionary within the Umayyad caliphate. And next time… The father of the fight will cross the river to bring the fight to the Umayyads in alliance with this revolutionary, and thereby lay the ground for a great revolution that would eventually overthrow the whole Umayyad Caliphate.